the National Archives podcast series. This talk is called Documentary Enlightenment, the death of Edward II and the principles of historical methodology. It was presented by Dr. Ian Mortimer and recorded on Thursday, the 28th of June, 2018 at the National Archives, Kew. Dr. Ian Mortimer is our speaker this evening. He's a historian, an archivist, a broadcaster, a poet, a novelist, a local campaigner, a father, and more recently, also a park runner. He's worked for the Historic Manuscripts Commission. He did his doctorate on uh, medical assistance to the dying in the early modern period. He's probably most well-known recently for his Time Traveller's Guides to Medieval England TV series on early, early modern England. He tells me before I hand over that his proudest achievement, however, is that he's submitted an article to peer-reviewed journal concerning every century from the 11th to the 20th, which is a pretty impressive achievement. Now, Ian's talk this evening is in association with a conference we've been running called Reimagining Records, organised by Abigail Dorr and Rebecca Searby, who are in the audience this evening, and several of the delegates are also here. Ian's talk this evening is entitled Documentary Enlightenment, Historical Methodology for the Profoundly Inquisitive. Ian's going to talk for about an hour and then there'll be plenty of time for questions afterwards. So I'll hand over to Ian now. Great. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, thank you very much for inviting me. This is a, 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 a privilege to be here and to be able to talk to you. Um, I have written a, piece, piece, uh, a speech because I really wanted to say something specifically and say things that I feel are quite important. I noticed that the title in the course of uh, publicity had changed somewhat from prof uh, profoundly uh, inquisitive to knowing and understanding or something like that. And so I thought I'd change it again. So it's now called Documentary Enlightenment, The Death of Edward II and the Principles of Historical Methodology. You'll see why I wanted to write this as I start reading it. On the 3rd of May this year, I was listening to Free Thinking on BBC Radio 3 and heard the celebrated Canadian poet Gary Geddes interviewed about his poem Sandra Lee Scheuer. Sandra Lee was one of the four students killed on the 4th of May 1970 when the Ohio National Guard opened fire on 600 Vietnam War protesters at Kent State University. I was particularly struck by something Geddes said at the end of the interview. First, he quoted the Italian historical philosopher Benedetto Croce, who declared that without narrative, there is no history. Then immediately afterwards, Geddes added this. What people, a lot of people, don't realise is that history is just a series of subjective narratives about the past. And I love that notion. There's something liberating about that. That caught my attention in the way that one sometimes inadvertently stubs one's toe, except that I felt I had just stubbed my mind. Was Croce right to say that without narrative, there is no history? And, if he was, does it follow that history is just a series of subjective narratives? After all, there are many photographs and documents that attest to the killings at Kent State. Many witnesses are still alive today. Such testimonies limit how much subjectivity others can apply to an account of what happened. But if history is just a series of subjective narratives, then it follows that all we can hope, hope to know about that day is a series of individual perspectives. There's no objective truth open to us. And this is the case even when we are talking about something we might have seen with our own eyes. This would not only confirm Hayden White's assertion that we are free to conceive history as we please just as we are free to make of it what we will, it would also endorse the postmodern scepticism of history, that it is infinitely redescribable and therefore cannot be guaranteed to contain any element of truth. Journalists tell us regularly that we live in a post-fact, post-truth world. What that means is rather difficult to determine. People in power have always told blatant lies, distributed untruths about their opponents and denied atrocities and misdemeanours. What has changed is that we now have a facile catch-all term, fake news, to describe politically motivated duplicity. It's a phrase that also reflects beliefs in alternative realities. 
we may find ourselves confronted by right-wingers who deny that the Holocaust happened, and flat-earthers who dismiss the mathematical evidence that the world is a globe spinning in space with the phrase, that's just scientism. And countless conspiracy theorists who declare that Elvis Presley and Hitler are still alive and that the Mafia were behind JFK's assassination. To say that the past is just a series of subjective narratives is to take your first tentative steps along the same road that all these groups march up and down day in, day out. They claim to be free-thinking skeptics of the mainstream media but are more accurately described as credulous believers of their own collective delusions. The danger is not that you or I might join them, it's rather that more people will come to think that historians are like them, in that we conceive of history as we please. It's an echo of the 1970s and 1980s, when postmodernists and critical theorists alike argued vehemently that we select our facts to suit our preferences and treat evidence as so many windows on the past, present, pretending that through those windows we can see the reality of past centuries, whereas in truth, they are static paintings framed at the insistence of dead men. Ultimately, there is no historical truth because in the words of the postmodernist Keith Jenkins, the gap between the past and history is such that no amount of epistemological effort can bridge it. Moreover, Every attempt to bridge it can be regarded as a personal, not a universal effort, because every narrative is ultimately a subjective one. Okay, it's a big problem, so what? What meaning can any of this have for those who study pre-modern history? We don't have to worry about those who think they can simply redesign the past to suit themselves. We have the means to judge what did and did not happen. We subscribe to standards of excellence. Conspiracy theorists don't. The only people we need to deal with are those who understand the principles governing how we may determine what happened in the past. In terms of building bridges between us and the medieval world, as long as the bridge builders have confidence that their constructions are sound, then no one need worry. The problem is that this isn't true. History, history is not only of concern to historians. We build bridges so everyone can cross, not just our fellow bridge builders. Moreover, this isn't any old bridge we're talking about. It's how we understand our place in time, how we have developed up till now, and what such developments mean for our future. It therefore needs to be reliable. As I've repeatedly stressed in my Time Traveller's Guides and even more in my book, Centuries of Change, in order to understand our species, we need to see ourselves in a more profound way than simply looking in the mirror of the present moment. How does humanity react when suffering a mortality crisis as great as the Black Death? Or experiencing a conflict as socially disruptive as the Hundred Years' War? Historians aren't apart from society, inquiring into artefacts and evidence as if to do so was some sort of perversion. We exist within society and in dialogue with society, partly to answer these questions about human nature and partly to explain what the artefacts around us say about life in the past. If our fellow citizens don't trust us, they won't share our values. These values support almost every historical activity, from funding academic departments and making history TV programs to maintaining historical attractions and governing what can and can't be done with listed buildings and scheduled ancient monuments. Without public trust, historians are merely stamp collectors arranging colourful but ultimately useless pictures on the page in a layout designed for no other purpose than to please ourselves and our friends. This deepening scepticism of history should force us to reflect on what we do. Why should the public trust professional historians? Indeed, what are the principles governing how we may determine what happened in the past? Why doesn't someone articulate them? Hayden White observed more than half a century ago that historians are open to accusations of bad faith 
on account of their claiming the privileges of both the artist and the scientist, while refusing to submit to critical standards currently obtaining in either art or science. As a writer of books for the public, the artistic side of history is naturally of great concern to me, and I've written and spoken about it on several occasions. However, the information science side is even more important. It underpins everything we do. So why do historians <coughs> not subscribe to critical standards? Oh, but we do subscribe them to them, I hear you say. Respectable scholars demonstrate excellence in all they do. Unfortunately, this isn't always true. They may lay claim to the higher standards of scholarship, but they do not consistently apply them, especially when it comes to political history. Indeed, one of the main points of this talk is to demonstrate how some of the most respected historians in this country sometimes fall short of the mark that you, I, and they would deem professional. My starting point is the news of Edward II's death. At those words, certain people here will think, Dr. Mortimer, you're sounding like a stuck record. You've been going on and on about this since 2003. Yes, I have. Since 2001, actually. Um, and I'm completely and utterly unapologetic about it. The reason is that Edward II's death serves as a magnifying glass on professional practice. It allows us to see how academics behave individually and collectively when their ability to talk about the past is questioned. As you'll see, it exposes much that is wrong with our profession. But at the same time, the magnifying glass shows us how we could do things better. And that is why I am not as I'm going to carry on talking about Edward II's death, pinpointing how the finest minds can make mistakes is the best way to see how we could all do things better. Briefly, to remind you of the essentials. On the 21st of September, 1327, two letters from Lord Berkeley were taken from Berkeley Castle to Lincoln via Nottingham, a distance of 150 miles, to let Edward III and his mother know that Edward II was dead. These letters arrived during the night of the 23rd of September. The following day, the lords and clergy who had been attending the Parliament at Lincoln were informed of the death. That same day, this 24th, letters to the lords guarding the, guarding the border with Scotland were sent out repeating the news, as we know from the survival of an original copy, original example. In other words, news of the death was accepted at face value by the young king and the royal household and disseminated immediately. It could not possibly have been checked. Three months later, an embalmed body wrapped in waxed cloth, seer cloth, and said to be that of Edward II, but which was viewed only superficially on its bier by the public, was buried in Gloucester Abbey. Two years after that, <coughs> in March 1330, the king's half-brother, the Earl of Kent, who had attended the funeral, was executed for trying to rescue Edward II from Corfe Castle. Dozens of men were implicated in the plot, including the Bishop of London and the Archbishop of York, from whom an original letter survives communicating news of Edward II's survival to the Mayor of London. Later in 1330, after Edward III took power into his own hands, Lord Berkeley admitted in Parliament that he had not previously heard about the death. Stop there. That last detail is critical. As I pointed out in 2005 in an article in the EHR, all of the evidence for Edward II's death ultimately rests on the information sent by Lord Berkeley to the court. It was accepted at face value and disseminated immediately, as we've seen. So if Lord Berkeley declared three years later in Parliament that he had not previously heard of the death, it follows that his initial announcement is highly dubious and may well have been a lie. Any impartial consideration of later events, including the Earl of Kent's plot, has to take into consideration the possibility that Edward II was still alive in 1330. The bottom line is this. In order to maintain that Edward II died in Berkeley Castle and deny that his half-brother attempted a genuine rescue in March 1330, you need to know better than Lord Berkeley what actually happened in his castle on the 21st of September 1327. Clearly, no one today does. The approach was innovative. 
It examined the flow of information contained within various pieces of evidence, rather than taking the evidence at face value. Twelve years later, no one dented its logic, although several people have tried. Their attempts have resulted in a catalogue of methodological errors that are hugely revealing of how erratic modern scholarship can be. You would have thought that a meticulous examination of how people knew about a historical event would have been welcomed by the scholarly community. But in the case of Edward II's death, it was, and is, treated by most scholars with scepticism at best and scorn at worst. Even though it explains why so many powerful people believed that Edward II was still alive in 1330 and why the Earl of Kent in particular was executed for trying to rescue a supposedly dead man. My analysis also permitted a re-evaluation of the Fieschi letter, which contains a considerable amount of verifiable information about Edward II's custody and his later peregrinations on the continent under the protection of his kinsman, the Fieschi family. Until my work was published, this document had remained an inexplicable oddity. Now it appears it may well be what it claims to be. But do academics want to understand it for what it is, or even what it might be? No. They clearly want it to disappear and no longer haunt their neat narrative. In the 12 years since that EHR article appeared, the most common academic response has been reductionism. And this is true of even the very best scholars. No one will deny that Professor Nicholas Vincent is one of our most distinguished academics, a fellow of the British Academy, no less. Yet in a history magazine in 2017, one of the arguments he marshalled in urging readers to discount the idea that Edward II did not die in Berkeley Castle was that, I quote, the Fieschi letter fits all too neatly into a wider pattern, the legend of the hidden or undying king. This is not good logic. If story A has something in common with stories B, C, D and E, most of which are false, it does not follow the story A is false. A penguin is a bird, and most birds can fly, but it does not follow that penguins can fly. Similarly, Professor Seymour Phillips has resorted to reductionism in his otherwise excellent Yale University Press study on the reign of Edward II. In that work, he declares that, I quote, the simplest explanation is surely the best one, that Edward II did die in Berkeley on the 21st of September, and that he was murdered or helped on his way to death. What makes this narrative, I quote, simpler than my analysis? It leaves unanswered the questions of why the Earl of Kent was executed and why and how the Fieschi letter was written, neither of which Professor Phillips has managed to explain. Professor Phillips is good enough to say in an end note that the questions I have raised need to be answered. But then he, our leading scholar on the reign, does not answer them. Presumably he would have done had he been able to. So what is simpler about that? I would suggest that the only thing simpler about the traditional narrative is that it makes the lives of senior academics simpler in that they don't need to unpick decades of research and examine it all over again in the light of a new finding. Now that I do understand and I sympathise with it. It would completely upset the integrity of everything that they produced to date. But it's not historical analysis. This is where the Edward II death debate takes on a surreal, extraordinary character. I've been compared to Dan Brown and Agatha Christie and all sorts of conspiracy theorists over the years, as well as an Italian opera. Um, I'm not sure which Italian opera, by the way. Which, while checking that 2017 magazine piece I mentioned above, I noticed that Professor Vincent wrote therein that it has not been proved that Edward II cheated death in 1327 any more than Elvis Presley can be proved to be alive. Seriously? Elvis? Oh, I get it. I must be the great pretender. Reductionism is not an answer to this or any other historical question. You might win a political debate by mocking your adversary, but that's not how things should work in scholarly circles, especially when we are trying to restore public trust. As you can see, 
The debate about the death of Edward II is only partly about the events of 1327. Yes, it is about understanding what happened to the man who ruled England haphazardly from 1307 to 1326. But it is much more about how we can determine what happened in the past. It is about how scholars reach consensus and how they behave when that consensus <coughs> is threatened. Ultimately, it's about the integrity of our profession. That's why I'm still engaged with it after so many years of bashing my head against the walls of ivory towers. If the reductionists are allowed to get away with peddling nonsense, we may as well all give up on trying to restore public confidence in our discipline because there is no discipline. If we wish to win back public trust, we must collectively demonstrate that we apply the highest critical standards consistently, even when reputations are at stake, especially when reputations are at stake. We need to show we can rise above personal interest and objectively determine what did and did not happen in the past and why history is not just a series of subjective narratives. Herein lies the challenge to you, to me, and to everyone else who has a professional interest in history. What are the core principles of historical methodology? Can you describe them? It isn't an enviable task. Who wants to posit a set of principles that we should all sign up to? Give me 10,000 cats to herd, please. It would be far easier than persuading a group of historians to agree on a set of principles. However, the apparent impossibility of a task is a very good reason for attempting it, if only because it is unlikely that many others will have attempted it before. Even if it is impossible to get universal approval for the principles of our profession, it is, an it is important that we highlight those that stand scrutiny and apply them consistently. Unlike rocket scientists and brain surgeons, historians cannot be judged by results. We can only be judged by our processes. In the rest of this talk, I'm going to talk, outline eight principles to which I think all historians should subscribe. Some of them may appear tediously obvious, but as you will see, I consider them worth emphasising because they have all been ignored by scholars engaged in the Edward II death debate. My thinking is that if professors of history drop their standards when publicly discussing a high-profile case, like the supposed death of a king, it's quite possible they will do likewise in other matters too. So principle number one, pretty obvious why it's at the top, without evidence, there is no history. Without evidence, Studying the past is like studying the surface of a moon of a planet in a distant galaxy without a telescope. It's impossible. But many people fall into the trap of arguing about the past on the basis of assumption and opinion, not evidence. I recently gave a public talk about some aspects of medieval religion. I tried to explain my theory that when everyone shares the same all-encompassing faith, there are religious dimensions to life that we, who live in a predominantly secular society, cannot imagine. One woman flatly refused to accept this and stated that there have always been atheists. I replied that no, atheism, atheism is a concept, as a concept only dates back to the mid-16th century in England, and even then it meant being against God. It did not acquire the meaning of believing in the non-existence of God until the very end of that century, and perhaps not even then. The woman wouldn't listen. Human beings have always been sceptics, she declared. It's in our nature. According to her, we never change, psychologically or physically. I disagree. You cannot proceed to determine anything factual about the medieval past without evidence from the Middle Ages. And we aren't. It's as simple as that. Discussing the past without employing evidence is a surprisingly common mistake, though, in political history as well. This is especially the case when layers of historiography obscure the lack of evidence. Consider the Earl of Kent's attempt to rescue Edward II from Corfe Castle in 1330. Why did he undertake this? 
Why was he not simply allowed into the castle to see for himself that the ex-king wasn't there? My explanation is that Edward II was there, a view that I might add is supported by contemporary evidence. Jonathan Sumption, who at the time was a QC, but these days is a Supreme Court judge, offered a different explanation in 2004, namely that the Earl was famously stupid. Professor Seymour Phillips similarly describes the Earl as stupid and gullible. Yet where is the evidence for this stupidity? The Earl was the commander of the English army in France during the War of St. Sardos, and trusted by Archbishop Melton, who wasn't stupid. In short, there is no evidence that he was anything less than normally intelligent. His supposed stupidity is an inference first made by Professor Thomas Frederick Toot in the early 20th century in order to explain why the, uh, why the Earl attempted to rescue his supposedly dead brother from Corfe. It thus follows that there is no evidence that he was famously stupid either, nor that he was gullible. To make two methodological mistakes in two words is something of an achievement for any historian. But the fact that both a senior judge and an eminent professor can do so is a warning to all of us. If they can, so can we. Although we would all wholeheartedly subscribe to the first principle of historical methodology, as I have it, that without evidence there is no history, it's extremely difficult to apply it consistently in everything we do. Principle number two is all historical arguments must proceed from evidence. This principle follows on from the first one, but it's perhaps not quite as obvious. After all, there are plenty of theoretical approaches to reimagining the past. But I'm not trying to cling to empiricism as if it's some sort of comfort blanket. Rather, I maintain that all theoretical approaches have to proceed from evidence too. If a theory has no evidence to support it, if, in other words, a historian simply dreamed it up, it's not a theory, but a hypothesis. In science, the difference between the two is much clearer. A hypothesis is something you might think before you've done any experiments, and a theory is how you might explain the results of your experiments based on the evidence arising from them. In history, you may have theories, but not hypotheses. We aren't like scientists because we can't test hypotheses. We can't sit Richard III down in a dark room, shine a flashlight in his eyes, and ask, so what did happen to the princes in the tower? If we form a hypothesis and then go looking for evidence that supports it, we are prejudicing our inquiry. We're not investigating the past with an open mind, but doing so along preformed lines. We are liable to fall victim to confirmation bias, the tendency to select the evidence that accords with our hypothesis, including the propensity to interpret evidence as supporting that hypothesis. Even if we look for evidence that might negate our hypothesis, we are still likely to be biased, because if we don't find any, we are liable, liable to consider our hypothesis true. Not finding any evidence that contradicts us, however, does not confirm our hypothesis. Such evidence might not have survived. Thus, when applying history theory to history, we have no choice but to start with the evidence and then proceed to formulate a theory. Later, documents might emerge that force us to adjust that theory. But then, too, the historical argument proceeds from the evidence. In short, a theory must be designed to fit the evidence, not the evidence selected to fit a hypothesis. Professional as well as amateur historians do not always observe this principle. In the case of Edward II's death, a good number of leading historians simply say they're not convinced by my work. This is not an evidence-based argument. It is a protest. In the EHR, <coughs> Professor Roy Haynes stated that, I do not find his argument convincing, and in my view, it lacks adequate supporting evidence. He seems to have forgotten that the debate hinges primarily on the falseness of the news for the death, that is, the lack of evidence for his interpretation, and only secondarily on the evidence for the survival. Dismissing my argument as unconvincing without any evidence does not somehow give the original announcement greater validity. With regard to the identity of the person buried as the supposed king, Professor David Carpenter admits that an image was shown in place of the body for the laying in state, but declares, 
Many people would have certainly seen the body before that. There's no evidence for this. The body would normally have been embalmed and thus enclosed in seer cloth within three days of death. No one would have been able to see it except those whom Lord Barclay allowed to do so. Even Professor Mark Ormrod, probably our preeminent 14th century scholar, has fallen short of the second principle, declaring that when William Le Gallais, who claimed to be Edward II, met Edward III in Coblenz in 1338, Edward III treated the man as a deluded simpleton. Once more, there is no evidence for this. All we know is that Edward III paid the man's expenses. In criticising these very distinguished professors, I am well aware that it must be hard for anyone to accept that an important part of his life's work has been called into question on account of a piece of misinformation or disinformation that he's not previously noticed. Each one of them must think, damn it, it's just not fair. And I sympathise. But we can hardly applaud professors maintaining narratives that rely on discredited evidence. Everyone in our profession should be reminded regularly of the sage words of John Maynard Keynes. When the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? Another example of the abuse of the second principle is when a historian skews a reading of a text to fit his theory. Sometimes a document can be interpreted in a number of ways, but a historian declares it can only mean what he wants it to mean. For instance, in 2007, David Carpenter took Lord Barclay's denial of knowledge of the death and interpreted it so it accorded with the traditional narrative. To be precise, the parliamentary clerks recorded in November 1330 that Lord Barclay, quote, wishes to acquit himself of the death of the said king and says that he was never an accomplice, a helper, or a procurer in his death, nor did he ever know of his death until this present parliament. Professor Carpenter declares that when taken with the sentence as a whole, by far the most natural meaning is that Barclay did not know anything about the alleged circumstances of Edward II's death. This isn't actually what the source says, nor is it clear how Professor Carpenter's natural meaning should differ from Professor Phillips's literal translation for the parliamentary roles of medieval England, which I quoted here. Professor Phillips also states that because Barclay said he was never an accomplice, a helper, or a procurer in the death, that this can only mean that Barclay knew that the death had occurred, but he claimed no part in it. This is demonstrably incorrect. No scholar is in a position to say what it cannot mean. It could mean many things, and one of them is its literal meaning. But which meaning is to be preferred isn't the point. Properly, a scholar should explore all the possible interpretations of a text, not the only one that fits his thesis. Herein, we have a clear case of historians trying to fit evidence to suit their preferred narrative. This is bad practice by anybody's reckoning. Principle number three. With written evidence is only as reliable as the information available to the author. This sums up the most important methodological lesson I have learnt in my years of discussing Edward II's fate. What I demonstrated in 2005 is that a huge mass of information, every chronicle, hundreds of entries in royal accounts, a royal building programme at Gloucester, the establishment of chantry chapels up and down the country, and the holding of royal ceremonies and commemorations could all be built on a single lie. We tend to trust announcements from people in authority, and people in 1327 did too. No one had any reason then to question the royal announcement that Edward II was dead. Thus, all the evidence for the death was created in good faith. The process allows us to see how information spreads and becomes evidence, and eventually history. It should empower us all. As historians, we are taught that there is a difference between primary and secondary sources. After a few years, you start to realise that sometimes the distinction isn't quite as sharp as it seemed to be when you were a student contrasting medieval manuscripts and modern textbooks. When you read chronicles that are themselves compounds of newsletters, charters and earlier chronicles, you realise that some of your primary sources are in fact early secondary sources. My information-based approach demonstrates that this is even more the case than most historians realise. Primary sources aren't as primary as they seem. They are amalgamations of older, 
unwritten data. They are not the beginning of a golden thread that links us with the past, but the end of one. Or rather, a chronicle is a gathering of the ends of many golden threads, each one being an exchange of information from person to person, <coughs> reaching back to the first individual to articulate an account of what he or she had seen. The same applies with any other document, including royal accounts. If there is no link with a witness of the event in question, then the subsequent flow of information to the author is based either on disinformation or on supposition. Just as there is no history without evidence, so there is no good evidence without good information, and there is no good information without an original report from an eyewitness of an event. Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say that eyewitnessing is reliable. Ten eyewitnesses will have ten different views of an event. But the information within the primary source material must link back through a series of informants to the actual event it describes. If there isn't that golden thread of information, there is no possibility of truth. Looking at evidence as the container of so much information allows us to ask who knew what and when they knew it. It doesn't just apply to the spread of information publicly. It also relates to the circulation of information privately. You can use it to show that Henry IV must have ordered the killing of his cousin Richard II. You can use it to show that the story of Edward II's homosexuality had its origins in politically motivated accusations of sodomy made against the Knights Templar, and even before that in Guillaume de Nogueray's accusations of sodomy levelled against Pope Boniface VIII in 1303. It's fake news, 14th century style. You can use the same method to identify where the stories of Edward III raping the Countess of Salisbury come from, and even who wrote Shakespeare's works. Shakespeare. Yet when this method is applied to Edward III's death, sorry, Edward II's death, most senior academics prefer to take the evidence at face value as if they can still apply the scissors and paste approach to history that was discredited by R.G. Collingwood in 1946. For example, in his review of Professor Phillips's study of Edward II in uh, TLS, Professor Chris Given Wilson emphasizes his belief in the traditional narrative and states that the accumulated evidence for his death in September 1327 really is a lot stronger than the evidence for his escape from captivity. Only if you accept the accumulated evidence at face value and disregard the fact that the sole source later denied all knowledge of what he had announced. It's hardly to his credit that Professor Chris Given Wilson overlooks this entirely in his own popular study of Edward II. Ignoring the principle that written evidence is only as reliable as the information available to the author means that the result can only be scissors and paste history, which, as Collingwood pointed out, isn't really history at all. Principle number four, evidence never exists in isolation. There are two aspects to this. The first is that probably no document is completely unconnected to other written material. For the 14th century, we've got so much evidence that we can check our sources extensively, both intrinsically and extrinsically. Despite this, when it comes to the Edward II debate, some academics treat each document that contradicts the traditional story as if it were an isolated anomaly. Perhaps the most extreme example is Professor Roy Haynes' edition of the Melton Letter in the English Historical Review. Haynes does not even consider what Melton actually says, but asks only, how could such an intelligent man as the Archbishop have been so gullible? He thus fails to consider the letter in relation to other sources, such as the evidence relating to the Earl of Kent's plot and his trial, the Fieschi letter, and most of all, Archbishop Melton's own dealings with the Fieschi through William de Aslakby, the intermediary whom Archbishop Melton maintained in Cardinal Fieschi's household in the early 1330s. The other aspect of this principle is that the land itself is evidence, a palimpsest of the past, especially with regard to its geography, topography, and archaeology. If a messenger from Berkeley Castle arrived at Lincoln, 150 miles away, on the night of the 23rd of September, his message could not have been checked before it was made public on the 24th. You can be certain of that. If a close roll entry places Edward III at the Tower of London on the 10th August, 19, uh, 1342, 
Does it mean he was there that day? Possibly. If another entry on the same roll suggests he was at Portsmouth, was he in both places? Probably not, as the distance between them is 72 miles. If a third entry on the same roll for that day indicates he might have visited Gloucester, was he in all three places on the same day? No. Gloucester is 102 miles from Portsmouth. If you use documentary evidence in isolation, it says one thing. But when you look at it in conjunction with other geographical evidence, it might say something completely different. With regard to the archaeological side of this principle, one of the most striking instances in recent years is the East Anglian Royal Settlement at Rendlesham, which lies four miles north of Sutton Hoo. Bede mentioned this place, mentions this place as the birthplace of a 7th century king. But apart from that single reference, there's no other reason to suspect Rendlesham was an important Anglian royal settlement. It is only Professor Christopher Skull's extraordinary systematic survey there, using four metal detectorists, that has made Rendlesham the biggest dot on the 7th century East Anglian map. Several thousand artefacts have now come to light since 2008, dating predominantly from the 6th to 8th centuries, including many gold and silver coins and intricately worked precious objects, leaving no one in any doubt this was a very high-status set settlement. It is true that some evidence contains things that cannot be connected with any other document or topographical element. Consider Gildas's short chronicle, for example, written in the early 6th century. It mentions the Battle of Mount Baden. So too do the works of Bede and Nennius, but they may well have drawn from their account from his. We don't know when the Battle of Mount Baden took place or where it took place. Thus we have to say in respect to this battle we have hit a dead end. However, I would still suggest that this principle has relevance because it is important to bear in mind what you do not know about the past. You might have read every early charter listed in Sawyer and be able to recite Beowulf off the top of your head but while there remains a parchment binding in the world that has not been pulled apart to see if the original binder reused a piece of Saxon charter or a chronicle you don't know what texts might yet turn up. Nor do you know what archaeology will yield, as Rendlesham shows. Perhaps we will find the site of a battle with a jewel inscribed Arturus may fit written around the rim. I'm not holding out much hope, by the way. With regard to the second's death or survival, who knows what may yet be found in the Vatican or the Bardi archive? We are told that in the latter there is a memorandum from one Bardi banker to another, dated 1338, stating, Messer Eduardo's debts will never be repaid. And the bankers would hardly have referred to the King of England, uh, the man paying those debts, as Messer Eduardo. The Peruzzi accounts, the other bankers, all refer to Edward III correctly as the King. But was Messer Eduardo actually Edward II in Italy? Possibly. Some of the fortune that Edward III paid to the Italian bankers in the 1330s certainly went to the Fieschi. But how much of it did? And did the rest go to them? And did it go to the Pope for building that new palace at Avignon that started in 1335? Or did it go to German mercenaries? That too is a possibility. It's an important implication of this principle that no evidence exists in isolation, that you have to bear in mind what you don't know as well as what you do as this places limits on what you can and can't say about the past. Principle number five is absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, except where a data set is known to be complete. Little needs to be said about the first part of this principle. It's so obvious that no one would ever think of disregarding it, would they? When it comes to Edward II's death, nothing's impossible. Professor Nicholas Vincent has written that when Lord Barclay claimed he had not heard of the king's death in November 1330, he didn't, Vincent says, he didn't deny others had carried out the deed. But why would he have said anything about who had carried out the deed when he had just said he had not heard of the death? You can't assume that something he didn't mention not happening did happen. Professor Jeff Hamilton made exactly the same methodological error in a peer-reviewed online article in 2010, in which he claimed that we do not have any evidence that Edward III did not remove the seer cloth from his father's face to examine the corpse. Well, why would we? We don't have any evidence that Edward III could not walk on his hands either, but that doesn't mean that he could. There are, of course, circumstances when you can use absence of evidence as evidence of absence, and that is when you have a complete data set. 
For example, if you wish to investigate Richard II's gift-giving to his relations in the 1390s, you can investigate the patent rolls. These reveal how Richard handed out titles, positions, and incomes to men he liked. In marked contrast, you can see that he gave nothing, almost nothing, to Henry of Lancaster, his cousin. Even if you expand your search to other roles, you can find only the gift of a helmet belonging to a friend of the king who'd been impeached and executed by Henry and the other lords appellant. And this was given on the anniversary of the execution, and thus was probably meant as a threat. Richard also gave Henry a dukedom. According to Thomas Mowbray, this was an unsuccessful attempt to lure Henry into a murder trap. The lack, the complete lack of any other gifts in these roles is itself a lack of close, evidence of a lack of closeness between the two men throughout the whole decade. But this is a rare example of when absence of evidence is evidence of absence, and it can only apply when the data set is known to be complete. Principle number six is motive is not evidence. I hope this is obvious to all. Our minds aren't medieval minds, as mentioned above. We can't hope to know the inner workings of a medieval character. We can only hope to identify different patterns between modern and medieval ways of thinking. Even when there seems to be a plain and clear motive for an individual to do a particular thing, that does not mean it appeared that way to him or her. You might say that Roger Mortimer had every motive for wanting Edward II dead, which is exactly what Professor Carpenter has written. On the other hand, you might say that Roger Mortimer had every motive for keeping Edward II alive so that he, as in Mortimer, would not alienate the young king and his mother, who both clearly remained deeply committed and emotionally connected to the ex-king. As Roger Mortimer spent a great deal of time with the teenage Edward III, murdering the boy's father would have guaranteed a very rocky relationship. In short, we cannot use motive in determining what actually happened. Motives are often presumed to be circumstantial evidence. They are not. I'm sorry to disappoint all the fans of detective programmes on TV, in which motive is always a clue. However, we are not looking for clues, but hard information. And your perception of someone else's motive is never going to be that. Detectives can work on a hunch. They can formulate hypotheses and test them. Historians can't. To use a motive as evidence in a historical question is the equivalent of a detective declaring a woman guilty of murder on the grounds that she stood to inherit something, regardless of her emotional and moral motives to keep the person alive and of other people's motives to kill the victim. A suspicion might point the modern detective in the right direction, but with the historian, it is likely to be a distraction, for a perception of motive is effectively a hypothesis, something that requires testing, and searching for evidence to fit that hypothesis is, as we've seen, liable to lead to confirmation bias and the skewing of evidence. Principle number seven is evidence is not proof. One of the most common methodological mistakes is to assume that contemporary evidence amounts to proof. It doesn't. For a start, most things aren't provable, pretty obviously. We can only prove matters that can be defined in absolute terms, like birth, death, land borders, distances, and dates, things that are quantifiable in time and space. More interesting aspects of life, such as love, hatred, lust, fear, ambition, envy, and sadness, cannot be proved. You may have an abundance of evidence that Queen Isabella hated Hugh de Spencer, but that does not amount to proof. How much did she hate him? Was that emotion consistent in our understanding of, is our understanding of hatred the same as hers? If you can't define something, you can't prove it, however much evidence you have. The best you can do is understand it. Things aren't that much easier with clearly defined subjects either. Many traditionalists respond to the narrative of Edward II's survival by demanding that that narrative be proved before they will even consider changing their minds. In reality, there is just as much of an obligation for a traditionalist to prove that Edward II did die in Berkeley Castle as there is for a revisionist to prove that he didn't. But what is proof? It's very easy for one side to demand that the other prove their case, but can anyone actually prove anything? Just as history is not like science in that we can't design a hypothesis and test it, 
so too it is unlike mathematics in that things are not provable in absolute terms. Sometimes you can employ a scientific test, but even then it's very unlikely to amount to more than a partial proof of the matter in question, especially in political history. For example, we could use lead isotope analysis to test whether the coffin containing Edward II's body was made of Mediterranean lead or not. It might be possible through DNA analysis to show that the body in that coffin is from the same male line as the bodies in the coffins of Henry III, Edward I and Edward III in Westminster Abbey. But certainty in these matters won't prove anything. We still won't know when the body was placed in the coffin, nor when the coffin was placed in the tomb. In political history, proof normally depends on documentary proof, and that is a much more elusive thing. So, what is documentary proof? People will inevitably define it in different ways, but I would suggest that it is when you can show that a specific piece of, inf piece of information within a document can only be interpreted one way, is supported by further information that has a different source, and ideally more than one source, and three, cannot reasonably be doubted. Any information found only in a single document can reasonably be doubted on the basis that it might be the result of an error or a fraud. Similarly, many pieces of evidence that contain the same information derived from, from just one source can also be reasonably doubted for the same reason. It follows that the more independent sources you've got, the more conclusive your documentary proof. But even supposing that you have multiple sources, you still need to process your information in an argument. Evidence never actually speaks for itself. Perhaps the clearest way to do this is to construct your argument as two diametrically opposing questions, following the sic et non, uh, yes and no uh, model of Peter Abelard. What is the evidence supporting your theory and is there any evidence that casts doubt upon it? To take an ad absurdum example, did Edward III exist? There are millions of pieces of evidence that he did, from charters to wall paintings, coins and heraldry. Furthermore, from what we know of seeing a large sample of them, they form a coherent whole right across Europe. No one could have forged them all single-handedly. Had a large number of people attempted to do so systematically, they would have left a massive trail of evidence of the fraud. On the other side of the argument, what contradicts his existence? Nothing. The royal records for the years 1327 to 1377 form a substantial, almost complete data set and all identify Edward III as king in those years. The balance is thus tilted 100% in favour of the argument Edward III existed and ruled for those five decades. There isn't even a theoretical possibility that he might not have done. The idea that he might not have existed is purely hypothetical. Now, how can we apply this to a more meaningful question? In this sense, we are like travellers in a dark wood, able to advance only by making our way between the occasional shafts of light that break through the tree canopy high above us. Fortunately, some evidence is truly enlightening, and when correlated with other documents and artefacts, it allows us to postulate a documentary proof. For example, on the fine rolls, you will find a writ to an escheater to make inquiry into the goods and lands of the late Thomas, Duke of Gloucester, dated the 7th of September, 1397. By itself, this piece of information proves nothing. But when contextualised with the evidence that the Duke was still alive that day, in royal custody in Calais, it suggests that the King and Court either had prior knowledge of the death, or they believed a rumour that he had died. When further contextualised with the information that the Duke was confirmed to be dead eight days later, it says more still. Most revealing of all, however, are the two writs from the King to William Rickhill, dated the 17th of, August, 17th of August, 1397. One of these told Rickhill to go to Calais. On arrival there on the 8th of September, he found the other writ, which instructed him to take the Duke's confession, which he did. None of these documents by itself proves that Richard II killed his uncle. Evidence is not proof. It is only when all the information is put into a model of who knew what and when they knew it that you may derive a proof. We can be sure that Richard II murdered his uncle because he could not have issued the inquiry into the Duke's lands after the Duke had died unless the writ on the fine rolls was misstated, 
However, the fact that three weeks earlier he'd ordered Rickhill to take the man's confession shows that he had prior knowledge then of the likelihood of death, which allows us to rule out the possibility that the apparent foreknowledge was due to a dating error or rumour. What is the evidence to the contrary? None. The only reasonable basis for doubt is that the Duke might coincidentally have died of natural causes in royal custody after the King had heard a false report of the man's death. That would be an enormous coincidence, and one that we may safely dismiss, given John Hall's independence, independent eyewitness account of how the Duke was murdered, which he confessed in 1399. The idea that the Duke of Gloucester might have died a natural death is merely hypothetical. Applying the sic et non test, what evidence is there that Edward II died in Berkeley Castle in 1327? Well, on the face of it, a considerable amount. And this is what has misled historians for centuries. There are royal letters, accounts, commemorations, parliamentary records and chronicles, all of which are absolutely clear that Edward II died in Berkeley Castle. However, none of them passes intrinsic examination, for they all depend ultimately on the news issued by Lord Berkeley in 1327, which he later denied. What evidence is there that Edward did not die in Berkeley Castle? Quite a few documents, including the Melton letter, the Earl of Kent's letter to Edward II at Corfe, his confession, his trial proceedings, the inconsistencies of the trials of Lord Berkeley and John Maltravers, Lord Berkeley's statement to Parliament in November 1330, the Fieschi letter, and a large amount of circumstantial evidence, including Edward III's treatment of the men who were charged with keeping his father's safety. Between them, these documents show at least four first-hand sources. What I did in 2005 was to shift the balance from one side of the sick et non inquiry to the other. Initially, the vast bulk of the evidence favoured the death narrative. Now, none of it does. Well, I cannot prove absolutely that Edward II was still alive in 1330, because such things are impossible to prove absolutely. I have provided documentary proof that the evidence for his death cannot be trusted, on the one hand, and that there are multiple information, independent sources for the survival narrative on the other. Principle number eight. A circular argument indicates an unresolved conflict of evidence. The circular argument is a disconcerting beast, like a serpent in Celtic art, all frantically twisted and trying to swallow its own tail. Or, to put it more prosaically, it is a cycle of reasoning that depends upon its own conclusion. One example was alluded to above in relation to why the Earl of Kent believed Edward II was still alive in 1330. It circulates like this. We can't use Kent's testimony as evidence that Edward II was still alive because the Earl was stupid. Why do we think he was stupid? Because he believed that Edward II was still alive. But why did he think that Edward II was still alive? Because he was stupid. And so it goes round and round. Nothing outside this cycle of proposition and denial is actually anchored in the past. Circular arguments feature quite commonly in the Edward II debate. They seem to arise when a historian notices that an existing narrative cannot accommodate a piece of evidence and tries to force the two together. Thus, there is an unresolved conflict of evidence at the heart of every circular argument, or at least there is in all the circular arguments in this debate. The most important one is to be found in the works of Professors Carpenter and Phillips. If you'll recall, they both maintain that when Lord Berkeley said he had not heard of the death of Edward II in 1330, that he didn't mean he hadn't heard of the death, but he, had, he did not know about the alleged circumstances of the death. The circularity of this argument may be demonstrated as follows. For centuries, historians have believed that Edward II died on the 21st of September 1327 because there's a mass of private and public contemporary evidence that clearly states he died on or about that day. How did the creators of this mass of private and public contemporary evidence know that he died? Because the death was announced at Lincoln by the government following the receipt of Lord Berkeley's letters. But did Lord Berkeley's letters contain good information? There is evidence in the Fieschi letter and documents connected with the Earl of Kent's plot that Lord Berkeley lied in 1327. This is confirmed by his own statement that he had not heard of the death in 1330. So why might historians dismiss all that evidence and disbelieve Lord Berkeley and claim that he meant, yes, the king was dead, but he was ig ignorant of the circumstances. There's no reason 
except for the mass of private and public contemporary evidence that states the ex-king died on or about that day. This brings us back to stage one. Similarly, historians who maintain that there must have been some other unevidenced check on the corpse at Berkeley Castle do so because of the mass of private and public contemporary evidence that states Edward died on or about that day. This too brings us back to stage one. As you can see, there's no information external to this cycle of information and denial that supports the original news of the death. In short, historians who believe that Edward II died in Berkeley Castle believe it because they believe it. In conclusion, the Edward II debate, as stated above, has acted as a magnifying glass on historical practice. It has shown the very best academics will neglect basic principles when they feel they feel obliged to defend their work or a consensus. They will resort to reductionism. They will advance historical theories without evidence. They will argue that an absence of evidence is evidence of absence. They will employ circular arguments. Even though the evidence for the death has been discredited, they will ignore the methods that show this and maintain that it must be reliable because they believe it. They are thus like the believers in alternative realities who do not wish to hear about the shortcomings of their methods but only to discuss their conclusions with those who share them. On this point, when I proposed to give this talk at a certain well-known international medieval congress, the organisers replied that, I'm sure the lecture you propose would not be along those lines. A large number of the audience you'd be addressing will be former pupils of Chris Given Wilson and Mark Ormrod, and any criticism of them would need to be packaged very carefully. Welcome to my world in which rigorous and innovative scholarship has to take second place to the reputations of leading academics. So why make such a big thing about this? Why do I continue to annoy all these poor professors? They're just trying to do their job. None of them are evil Bond villains or Holocaust deniers. They've been merely caught in an unfortunate trap. Having committed themselves to the narrative, traditional narrative over the course of their careers, they cannot now explore possible alternatives without undermining the integrity of their life's work, as well as that of their senior colleagues. I understand this and I sympathize. I'm also very grateful to every one of them because I wouldn't have learnt a fraction of what I've learnt about historical methodology without their determined attempts to undermine my analyses. I therefore thank them all, even if none of them thank me. But we need to be able to get our facts right. What we do is worthless if it amounts to building a narrative on the basis of a senior academic's declaration that King died in 1327 because it's simpler that way. If we are to be content to let that be the benchmark of excellence, then woe betide us all. However, there's no reason why we should not improve the rigour of our profession. All we need to do is to recognise, I think, three things. First, we need to hone our methodological skills and apply them consistently. Second, we need to have the courage to question the consensus, even when it seems that every senior academic who has written on the subject is ranged against us. They won't last forever. Good methodology will. And third, we need to understand the implications of the work of the 19th century Austrian mathematician George Cantor. Critics of history as a discipline often tell us that the past can be infinitely redescribed. But in so doing, they reveal they do not understand what an infinity is. It sounds like a big, daunting thing, an intellectual atomic bomb, whereas it is often just a toothpick. As Cantor pointed out, there are big infinities and small infinities. Imagine a line marked with numbers, starting at zero and leading away from you towards infinity. All those numbers together constitute one big infinity. There's no end to it. But that's only one infinity. There are many others, much smaller. For example, there's another infinity between one and two, because that one integer can be broken down infinitely. There's yet another infinity between 1.1 and 1.2, for the same reason, and another between 1.111 and 1.112, and so on. There's an infinity of infinities, and some of them are infinitesimally small. Thus, when the critics say the past can be infinitely redescribed, that doesn't mean to say the variations between all the possible accounts are enormous, or even that they're that significant. 
When we say that everyone who was at Kent State University on the 4th of May 1970 has a different view of what happened that day, a series of subjective narratives, that doesn't necessarily mean there are any major differences between them. All those people were occupying different positions. They all had different views. But their narratives are all constrained by the evidence that four people died and nine were injured. That some of them were engaged in the protest against the American intervention in Vietnam and that the Ohio National Guard opened fire with live ammunition. No one's going to deny any of those things. They're all definable in non-relative terms and have multiple sources. The point is this. The more events that you can prove, the more limitations there are to the possible redescriptions of the past, and the smaller the variations possible in them. The number of potential discrepancies remains infinite, but their significance is reduced. As I put it in what isn't history, if the past can be infinitely redescribed, it's only in the sense in which Beethoven's Ninth Symphony can be infinitely reinterpreted. No two performances are identical, but they are all recognizably similar. The score remains essentially the same. So, was Benedetto Croce right to say that without narrative there is no history? No. Geddes' starting point was flawed. A single detail, devoid of narrative, can have tremendous historical significance, partly because it limits the possible redescriptions of the past, and partly because it may have significance all of its own. The fake death of Edward II has just such significance. So too does the very real killing of an innocent student at Kent State University in 1970. Single event history can be just as meaningful as narrative history. You could even write history purely in terms of a series of unlinked, objectively tested facts, though I don't suggest you try. Narrative is useful when practicing the art of history, but it is not essential to the science of determining what happened in the past. So where do we stand now? If you were to say the standards of historical scholarship are only as high as their least rigorous application, then pretty obviously we're in a parlous state. It is astounding in itself that so many professors are stuck in an intellectual rut. What is even more extraordinary is that so many of them agree that this particular rut is just the place to be. I do not believe that this will continue much longer. It can't. Edward II's death represents an abnormally low point in medieval historiography, and one that historians working in other fields will start to regard with consternation, because such methodological slips cannot help but bring the whole discipline into question. We need robust principles, refined methods, and consistent logic, not airy declarations of what is and is not convincing, or preferences for simpler arguments, or scissorsome-paced history. Above all, we need a scientific approach to information and its potential to prove the past. And if this sounds radical, then so be it. As Albert Einstein once said, we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. Thank you for listening. This podcast is copyright the National Archives all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.